We're going to continue in our series, our Advent Christmas series that comes from Isaiah 9, verse 6. So I'll read it to you again. Isaiah 9, verse 6, a familiar passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So each Sunday during Advent, we take one of those four names, and we examine who Jesus is and what he has come to do based on those specific designations that the prophet Isaiah gave Jesus hundreds of years before he was born. Last week, Pastor Josh talked talk to us about Jesus being our wonderful counselor and encouraged us to obey his wise counsel, to listen to him and do what he says. And today we're going to be talking about Jesus as the mighty God, mighty God. Now, when you preach a series like that, which is all coming from one verse, it's highly concentrated, you know, you have one phrase to develop, what, what it allows us to do is it allows us to look at themes in Scripture, it allows us to look at frameworks, which could be very helpful. Now, this allows you then to apply different parts of it to your life, but it gives you a, a perspective, it gives you a worldview, it gives you a framework. So that's what we're going to do today. And one of the prominent biblical themes, part of the Christian framework, is this biblical motif of God at war. God is a warrior. God fights for His people. The Lord defeats His enemies. The victory that He earns and in battle is our victory. It's shared with us by grace. Now, this is a huge, rich theme throughout the Scriptures, and we'll examine some of it today and, and then apply it to us as it has to do with what Jesus came to do for us. So let's look at this topic and these Scriptures under four headings. We have four headings today. Number one, let's look at His war, the Lord's war. Number two, let's look at His enemies. Number three, his weapons. And number four, his victory. His war, his enemies, his weapons, and his victory. This child that is prophesied to be born is no ordinary human king. Even though a lot of royal themes and royal titles are applied to him, it's very clear that he's not just a mere human ruler. In fact, he is God himself. This title, Mighty God, leaves no doubt that this person is a divine person, that this is God. If you look just at the next chapter of Isaiah, so Isaiah 10, verse 21, the same phrase, the same title is clearly applied to the God of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Well, who's the God in question here? Well, of course, that's the God of Israel. And so the same title is used of this child that is going to be born and is going to rule over the people. He is the mighty God, El Gibor, the same title that is used of God in other passages of Scripture. And so right away, this, the reader of this passage and the hearer of this verse begins to think, oh, that's the same God that we've heard about. This is the same God that, that we have read about in the rest of the Bible. The same God who brought his people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. Same God. He's the same God who led them in the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. Listen to Psalm 135 beginning in verse 8. 
He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. This is the God. And so Isaiah says, this child is going to be born, and he's going to be this God, this mighty God. The same God you know is going to be born as a human person. He's the same God who delivered God's people from Midian during the time of Gideon. He's the same God who who expanded the kingdom under David. He's the same God who delivered Jehoshaphat from the Moabites and the Ammonites. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15 says, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. He's the same God who protected his people from that great horde and delivered them. Same God who who protected his people in Babylon during the exile. Same God who preserved his people from destruction in Persia under Queen, Queen Esther. The same God whose hand was on Zerubbabel and Joshua and Nehemiah and Ezra when God's people returned from exile and rebuilt. Now the point I'm trying to make is, is that Jesus is the divine warrior who came to fight for you. This is the prophecy. There will be this person this human baby who is also mighty God, who will continue fighting for God's people. The prophecy of Isaiah is that this Messiah, this promised King, this Christ, will come to win the war for the people. He will finish the war. He will get the final victory for them. He comes to save and deliver His people. To quote Moses speaking to the Israelites when they were pursued by the armies of Egypt and they were forced, they're back to the Red Sea and they're wondering what's going to happen. This great army is coming against them and they are told, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. These promises all apply to us, because we have the same mighty God who is fighting for us. This is your lineage. This is where you belong. This is the history of your people. You're part of the people who have been delivered, for whom God fights. And the promise that is given to us through Christ, through this mighty God who's a baby in the manger, is that he will win the battle. He will win the war. He will finish this conflict. You start looking at these passages seriously, right? And you realize what is actually being promised here. These are not pleasantries. These are not sentimental things for Christmas. These are great promises of God to us, to his people. And, he, and these promises are being fulfilled in your life, 
And they will be fulfilled completely when he returns. I just read a fascinating interview in Christianity Today. It's the most recent Christianity Today with Bono, the lead singer of U2. Anybody listens to U2? Some there? Okay, there's, we've got one at least, maybe a couple. They used to be huge, you know, when I was growing up. And Bono talked about his career. He talked about his Christian faith. And this is what he said about the enemies of the Christian. He said, I had a Bible, and I remember highlighting Ephesians 6. For a battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and so on. He says, it made a huge impression on me. And as an 18 or 19-year-old, I thought, that's the real fight that's going on. The rest is an expression of that. And by the way, I didn't think religious people understood their own scripture because they were often using their religion, certainly in Ireland, as a club to beat the others down. I mean, the Catholics and Protestants, it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Yeah, we picked a more interesting fight, he said. Then he quoted a few lines from his own song, which, you know, rock stars can do that. You just quote, quote your own song in an interview. And this, this, these are the lines. Choose your enemies carefully, because they will define you. Make them interesting, because in some ways they will mind you. They're not there in the beginning, but when your story ends, going to last with you longer than your friends. Bono said, I think what you two probably got right was we just, we picked a fight with a much more interesting enemy than the more obvious for punk rock. I think there's something there. There's something in this idea of understanding who your enemies are and picking the right fight and not getting distracted on other things, on lesser battles, but actually seeing who your enemy is. So do you know who your enemies actually are? Are you fighting the right enemies? Now that passage that so impressed Bono, Ephesians 6, verse 12, says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What is it saying? Our conflict is not primarily physical. It's not primarily with people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our main opposition is spiritual in nature. Now, we can generally characterize it under the notion of sin. This is another great, big, rich theme in Scripture, this idea of sin. Sin is everything that is against God. Everything that is anti-God is sin. And sin manifests itself in, in, in many different ways. Sin is rebellion. Sin is disobedience and breaking of God's law. Sin is idolatry, worshiping other things or people as, as gods. Sin is injustice. Sin is brokenness of shalom, of the way God has designed this world to work, and many, many other aspects. But all sin, in whatever form it is, all sin separates us from God and places us under His just condemnation and wrath. 
And all sin inevitably, because of that, because it's anti-God and the God is the source of life, all sin inevitably leads to death. So God fights against sin. God fights for you against sin. Jesus came to destroy the spiritual powers of evil, the spiritual powers of sin, and to restore his creation and restore his people back to God. Now, let's get more specific about our enemies. The general rubric is sin, but what are the specifics here? Where do we see our fight with sin taking place? There are three areas. You can think of them as the three branches of the military of sin. They are the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh, the world, and the devil. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is where we have this laid out for us to know what our enemies are. Who is against us? Who is against God? Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's the world. You're following the course of the world this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, that's the flesh, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, that's the consequence of sin, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So sin works against us through the flesh, through the world, and through the devil. Now, these three enemies are not independent of each other. They don't, they don't work independently. They, it's, a lot of it is mixed together. And you're almost never fighting just one at a time. But they are distinct. And, and it's worth knowing each one specifically to know how to deal with them because different weapons work against different enemies. The flesh, for example, refers to the sinful nature of the fallen human being. Sin is inside us. Our hearts are inclined against God. The passions or or desires of our flesh are against the Spirit of God. It's it's the human instincts of self-preservation and self-care, ungoverned, by the higher spiritual principles. Think of the flesh as a fire in the home without the boundaries of the fireplace or the hearth. Fire is very useful to provide light and heat, but it must be controlled, contained, and restricted and guided to the right purpose. Like fire, the flesh is a good servant but a poor master. And when in our sinfulness it's flipped... And so the flesh rules over the spirit. All sorts of destructive things happen. Without the presence and the guidance of the spirit of God, we pursue our own ambition. We want to rule. And so we reject the reign of God in our flesh. We exalt ourselves and put God down. We follow our own code and we break God's law. This is life according to the flesh without the Spirit controlling and restricting and governing and guiding. Now, what about the world? 
What is the world, and how is the world different from the flesh? Well, the world refers to the human society organized in opposition to God. The world is a system, a structure of values and practices that are all set up to subdue or exclude God from the human community. It's an anti-God society. The world is the collective resolve to go against the will of God. The world cannot be reduced to a few worldly practices. It's a great mistake that the church seems to make over and over again in various generations to say, well, the world is just these things, so don't do them. So don't play cards, don't dance, you know, those kinds of things. Don't cuss, right? And we reduce the world to just a handful of practices that you can easily avoid. And then we find out that by simply avoiding those, that handful of practices, we have actually really become worldly. Because we have given into pride and arrogance and bitterness and resentment and jealousy and competition, all those things that are much more powerful than a few cuss words here and there. And so the world is a structure, it's a system, it's a way of life. It's actually comprehensive, it's a, it's a framework, it's a worldview. That's an enemy. That's an enemy that works against us. Apostle John describes the world in this way. He says it's about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Now, is the flesh connected to the world? Yes, but it's a collective flesh. Now, there's a lot of us acting according to our flesh, and we have legislated it now. And now we know that's the right thing to do is to pursue your flesh. That's the world. The world is the pride of life. The desires of the eyes, it's the, it, it, it's the envy, it's the contention with others, it's, it's the self-exaltation on a societal basis. That's the world. The world working hard to lead and keep us away from the love of the Father, which is what John tells us in 1 John 2. It's the love of the Father and the love of the world, and they cannot be together in the same heart. So that's the world. What about the devil? Well, the devil is the personal adversary. He and his associates are actively opposing God and temporarily rule over this world. So again, the world is demonic. The flesh is pursuing sin in the context of a collective, uh, collective of sinners. So all of this is, fits together, and there's a lot of connections, and it's all working together, but there are distinct elements distinct elements we need to know about. The devil is the accuser of Christians. He's the accuser of the brethren. He entices us to believe his lies and to act as people condemned by God and without hope. He reminds us of our sins and leads us to destruction. He is a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. That's who he is. And so when he lies, he simply acts out of his character. And the world buys into his lies. That's the structure that is anti-God by its very nature. The devil tempts us to sin more, to abandon ourselves to sin, and to reject the grace of God. Now that's the devil. Now you can think of the flesh as sin within me, the world as sin among us, and the devil as sin against me. Or we can put it, 
in a different way. The flesh is the natural sin. It comes out of the sinful nature of every person. The world is the organized sin. It's the institutionalized, organized sin. And the devil is the personified sin. However you think of these things, these are the three greatest enemies. From them comes death. They play sin out in our lives. It's the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now going back to what Bono said, how do you pick the right fight with the right enemies? Now there are two things to keep in mind here. One is we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our fight is not physical. It's not primarily political. It's not primarily cultural at its core. Although all those things have their places. They're the expressions of that fight. We are not not political. We are not not engaged in the culture. But the core of our fight, at its core, at its essence, it's a spiritual fight. We cannot fight poverty or racism or hunger without seeing those realities as rooted in sin, as caused and sustained by the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you go into those realities and you pick those fights, the bigger fight that you're actually fighting is with sin, is with the devil, is with the flesh, and with the world. So yes, those are channels. But the main fight, the right fight, and the right enemies are much bigger than those. Likewise, we cannot fight specific people and consider them our greatest enemies. Now, we can have enemies. Jesus talks about having enemies. Jesus talks about the church being persecuted. Yes, those are people, actual people who are persecuting the church. They are our enemies. But what does Jesus tell us to do with them? Love them. He tells us to love them because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against much greater realities, realities of sin, realities of evil. And so these people, our enemies, are slaves to sin, and they need to be delivered by Christ just as we have been. Now, the second thing to keep in mind as we pick the right fight with the right enemies is that our fight must be comprehensive and balanced. This was a challenging point for me to hear, even as I wrote it. Friends, I have enough trouble with the flesh. I don't need the devil. I don't need the world. I, I can be completely consumed just by fighting me, okay? And yet, I need to see that there are three enemies, and they're different. And if I am fighting an imbalanced war, if I just focused on one at the exclusion of others, there is a spiritual imbalance that takes root in my life and actually changes me and messes me up and makes me ineffective even in the fight with one of them, much less all of them. So for example, if we concentrate too much on the flesh, which is, that's my tendency. If I concentrate too much on the flesh, it's easy to become too introspective, too self-absorbed, too isolated from others. Do you see what I'm saying? If you exclude the devil in the world and all you focus is on you, that's all you're going to be thinking about. You're going to just be thinking about you. How can you love others when all you're thinking is about you? 
and you're going to uncover more and more sin in you because there are, there's plenty. Just keep digging, and you're going to find more and more layers of sin. And that can easily lead to discouragement. But if I concentrate too much on the devil, it's easy to miss out on the goodness of God because I am so consumed with the evil of the demonic that I am missing the good of God. We become prone to explain all sin, including our own sin, our own failures, our own sin, by blaming the devil. Now, you've seen that happen. Some of you have done it. Where it's your sin, but all you've been thinking about is the devil, and you see him everywhere. He is not as powerful as you think. And he's not as omnipresent as you think. But because we focus on him, then we lose sight of our own sin. And that leads to all sorts of issues. If we concentrate too much on the world, we can easily become arrogant. Pride can blind us to our own sin. We become prone to elevate ourselves over others and condemn them. It's me against the world. It's us against them. Look at those sinners out there. That's because you forgot about your own flesh. You haven't been fighting your own flesh. You've just been fighting the world. So the, the right fight is with the three enemies at the same time. As overwhelming as that may look right now, and I'll give you much better news as, as we finish the sermon, okay? It's lots of help. But as you set up the war, as you think about, okay, where am I in this conflict? You are here and you have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you have to find, fight all of them at the same time. Now, what are the weapons? What weapons does Jesus give us to fight these three great enemies? This is where hopefully it's going to start getting more encouraging as we, as we go on and as we finally come to the communion table, you will be encouraged. Um, I don't know if you're tired of me talking about Ukraine. I talk about it a lot because I think about it a lot. But one of the big turning points in, in the, the war of Russia against Ukraine was, was the delivery of HIMARS missile systems from America to Ukraine. It was a huge deal. Ukraine had been asking for it, and finally they got them. And even when they first got just a couple, I think it started with, right away there was a huge change on the battlefield. These are more precise. They can, they can, they can hit farther than the Russian equivalents, and, and they completely turned the war around. So with the right weapons, no matter how great your enemy is, and Russia is a great enemy, but no matter how great the enemy is, if you have the right weapons, you can win. And this is what we need to figure out when we think about Jesus, our mighty God, fighting for us. What are his weapons? What does he give us? Number one, Jesus fights the devil with his word. He fights the devil with his word, with Jesus' word. Now, you remember the famous passage when Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Matthew 4 records it for us. Jesus responded to the temptations of the devil, these great temptations, great temptations that were getting right into the heart of the human being. How did Jesus respond? Well, first he said, it is written. He said, it is written. First response. When the devil came at him again, Jesus said, again it is written. <laughs> Here's another one for you. 
And third, he said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. He fought Satan with God's word. His response to Satan's lies was the truth of God's words. That's where the battle is won or lost. And so we do that. We are to fight the devil. We respond to his temptation with the truth of God's words. When the devil comes and says, you are condemned, we say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth of God's word. Do you remember that? Do you know that verse? Many verses like that. When the devil comes and he says, God hates you. How can God love you? And your flesh believes that. And you say, yep, that sounds about right. How can God love me? Well, that's your own word responding. What is God's word? What does God's word say? God's word says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Does he love me? Yes. I know that he loves me because he gave himself for me in my place. That's how much he loves me. When the devil says, sin so that grace may abound. God's grace, this is how crafty the devil is. He's going to use God's word eventually in that conversation and twist it. So he's going to say, doesn't the Bible say, sin so grace may abound? Isn't God's grace and mercy so great that it can cover all your sins? Does it really matter that you stop sinning now? What do we say? We just keep reading the same passage. And we say, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I'm a converted person. When I came to Jesus, I died to sin. I'm not going to live in it. It's the truth of his word, his glorious gospel that defeats the devil and gives us life. And it's our faith, our trust, our faith in God's word that wins our battles with temptations. Martin Luther was great at that sometimes over the top. He records various conversations with the devil, and some of them need to be censored. And certain words, speaking of cussing, maybe need to be replaced. But he had no patience for the devil. And he would just preach Scripture to him. I'll use one of his more palatable sayings. This is from his famous hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word from the mouth of God shall fell him. That's how powerful the gospel is. Use it. Use it. Use the word. Read it and know it and meditate on it and memorize it so you can use it. That's one of your weapons. This is in the arsenal of the mighty God who came to fight for you. And as you face the devil, you face him not defenseless, but with God's word. Secondly, Jesus fights the flesh with his spirit. Fights the devil with his word, but he fights the flesh with his spirit. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit 
to battle sin that is within us. What a great gift. What a powerful weapon. How can it get more powerful than God himself, right? Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. He also is the mighty God. And this Spirit, this God, actually dwells in you and dwells among us so we can resist the flesh. Romans 8 verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Have you experienced life and peace by simply walking in step with the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What's the promise here? If you are following the Spirit, you cannot follow the flesh. You can't do one and the other at the same time. Now, many of us have found a way to interchange and go back and forth. We can't do it at the same time. So if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Other desires will will take hold of you and control you. Whenever you feel the pull of sin from within, from within your heart, your sinful heart, remember that the Spirit of God is in you in the same heart, and He is greater, He's so much greater than any flesh. So walk in step with Him. Live in hope that the Spirit will get control over your flesh and all your desires will one day function properly under the loving rule of God. That's the hope, that the fire will burn brightly and warmly in the hearth of God's house. That your basic physical desires, your, your, your instinct for self-preservation and self-care will be put in the right context under the rule of the Spirit of God, and you will actually enjoy creation the way it's supposed to be. That's how you're going to be. That's the promise. That's the hope. So live in that hope and trust the Spirit as you fight your flesh. Jesus fights the world, thirdly. He fights the world with His church, His body. What is the contrast Contrast in Scripture between the world and what? It's the church. The church is the society of Jesus. The church is the structured system that is set up not against God as the world is, but for God, in line with God. The church is where His Word is believed. The church is where His Spirit is active and followed. The church is where we understand these kinds of things. And we can say we know who our enemies are. But we are together against them. The church becomes an an alternate society. It becomes a parallel society where things are different. Sure, some of it may may seem similar on the outside, but, but the underlying values and principles and practices are so different from the world. Unless it isn't. Then the church is worldly. Can't tell the difference. The church is worldly. But there has to be a difference if the Holy Spirit is in us and if the Word is believed. Jesus fights the world with His own body, the church. The love of the Father is in the church. 
Why are we all here? How are we connected to each other? Well, there may be many answers to that question, but the main one is because our Father loves all of us, and we are all His children. And this is a household of faith. That's how we're connected to each other, through the love of the Father. But in the world, the world rejects the love of the Father. And so we are called to love the world. In the church, we are called to love God and others. Love of others in the church, when we sacrifice for each other, when we don't compete, when we don't envy, we, we resist bitterness and resentment. We say we will not treat each other the way they treat each other in the world. When we do that, the world is exposed as bankrupt because we realize that this is better. This is much better than, than anything I've experienced in the world. So when we do that, when we live according to the love of the Father and we love each other the way we should, we don't need the world, and the world loses its power over us. When we mimic the world, when we try to be like the world, when we try to outworld the world, that's a problem. But when we see it for what it is and contrast it with the church that is full of God's love, the world loses its power over us. The church is another great weapon that Jesus, the mighty God, gives us. He fights the flesh with the spirit. He fights the world with his body, the church, and he fights the devil with his word. And finally, his victory. Just like in any war, there are decisive battles that change the course of war. Now, once again about Ukraine. After the war is over, historians will discern which battles were most decisive. I don't think we can tell that now. There are many things that happened, many things that from our perspective seem to have turned the course of, of the war in a different direction, kind of broke that momentum. But we don't know yet because other battles are probably coming. We don't know how it's going to end exactly. We don't know what will prove to be most decisive and most important. Maybe it's HIMARS. Maybe it's those weapons that we will say that was the main thing that helped Ukraine win. Maybe. Maybe it was the time when the Russians had to retreat from Kiev. And when Kiev stood and, and they didn't fall in the first couple of days. Maybe that was the decisive battle very early on that changed the course of the war. Maybe. Maybe it was the Kharkiv offensive. Maybe it's a small town that was taken that broke the back of the Russian military. We don't know that, but at some point we will. But in the gospel, we do. We have the record of the decisive battles that our God won for us. We have that. There was the battle of the manger, the incarnation of the Son of God. When God came into the world to save it, because He so loved the world that He came and he came and he lived among us and we have seen his glory. He is who he is. He showed himself to us. He showed what God is like to us. And he lived a life that was perfect. He lived a life consumed with the love of the Father. He loved the world, but he was not of the world. He lived very differently. He fulfilled God's law. He lived loving God and following him and loving others and serving them. There was the battle of the cross. The Son of God was put to death because he didn't follow the world. 
Because he refused to give up the love of his father. Because he came to save us, he was put to death on the cross. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit, Peter tells us. He dealt with our guilt decisively on the cross. While sin is still present inside me, I still have my flesh and I have lots of trouble with it still. Yet I'm not enslaved to it anymore. Sin's power, which is, which is guilt and condemnation and the law, the way it works out in our consciences, has been broken on the cross because Jesus took our punishment, because he took our penalty. In the flesh, in the human nature, God died for us. This mighty God, one on the cross, the young hero, stripped for battle, went to the cross for us. Colossians 2, 13 and, and 14, 15, great passage. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of debt with its legal demands the record of all our sins, all our offenses, all our crimes against God, Jesus nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God disarmed them. Now listen to John Calvin. There's no tribunal so magnificent no throne so stately, no show of triumph, triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as is the scaffold on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, the prince of death. And then we have the battle of the empty tomb where Jesus disarmed the devil. He disarmed these evil powers. Now, how did he do that? Well, the one who died and rose again, conquered death, took all power away from the devil. What power does the devil actually have against you? He can't kill you. He can't kill you. You're going to be with God forever. If he kills you, you're going to be with God forever. What can he do to you? Can he use guilt on you? No, he can't because Jesus paid for your sins. And you are not condemned before God. The wrath of God is not on you anymore. What power does he have left? Oh, some little temptations pulling on our flesh. Sure. But he lost all the power he used to have. We used to be his slaves. He used to order us around. Luther says he used to ride us like an animal. But no more. No more because of Jesus' cross and resurrection. Because in the resurrection, when he came out, he says there's no power left for the devil and his associates anymore. God's truth prevailed in the resurrection. All that God said was going to happen. And all that he said was, was going to be effective against our sin actually was effective. Announced by God as valid, as done, as finished, as working on our behalf. What can the devil do? Grace overcame sin in the empty tomb. 
And so we say with Scripture that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. How? Through the cross and the resurrection. And then there will be the final victory parade at his return. Let me just read you some scriptures and, and, and we'll pray. Revelation 19. When I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That's a great vision. Behold, a white horse. What's next? The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is our mighty God. This is the divine warrior that came to fight for his people on a white horse, no less. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, not just one crown, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows by him, but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Please don't miss the symbolism. His robe is dipped in blood, but our robes are pure white because his blood cleanses us. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our God. That's the mighty God who was born as an infant in the manger. 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. That's the ultimate victory. That's the ultimate parade. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the image. Take that home. Jesus reigns because he has put all his enemies under his feet. Your flesh, the world, the devil are under his feet. And the last enemy is to be destroyed, and that is death. There will be a time when there will be no death for us. That's just not going to be our reality. It's just going to be life. Revelation 21.4 tells us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I know some of you are in tremendous pain, but there will be a time when there will be no pain. And you won't cry in pain, because he will wipe your tears. And there will be no death at the end of that. For the former things have passed away. And so you read these passages, and you hear about this mighty God who's fighting for us. And what do we say? How do we respond to that? Well, Romans 8.31 is a perfectly fine thing to respond with. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to the world? What then shall we say to the devil? What then shall we say to the flesh? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Yes, I know the world is against me. I know the flesh is against me. I know the devil is against me. But what can they really do to me? What can they do to me if God is for me? And in Christ, God is for us. 
Let me finish with this quote from John Donne. You know I read poetry sometimes, right? I was reading John Donne's poetry this weekend. Uh, he was a preacher and a poet, and when he preached, it's like reading poetry. <laughs> sometimes when you read his poetry, it's like listening to preaching too. So <laughs> He preached his final sermon. He's a reluctant pastor. He much rather would have just written poetry, but he preached his final sermon in the royal court, 1631, I think it was, and, and people knew at the time when he was preaching that that was his final sermon. There was a sense of which this was his funeral sermon, even though he wasn't dead yet, but people felt that he was preaching not just to them, but he was preaching to himself too, and he was preaching about death losing its power and Christ triumphing over our enemies. And this is how he closed his final sermon. And maybe when I'm older and more mature and more skilled, maybe I can close a sermon like that too, one day. This is what John Donne said. There we leave you in that blessed dependency to hang upon him that hangs upon the cross. There bathe in his tears. There drink at his wounds and lie down in peace in his grave till he vouchsafe you a resurrection and an ascension into that kingdom which he hath prepared for you with the inestimable price of his incorruptible blood. Amen. His name is Mighty God and he fights for you. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So let's express our faith in his word, our hope in his spirit, and our love for God and each other as we come to the table.